0: This episode of Talkin' was recorded before the untimely and tragic death of Lisa Marie Presley.
1: It's time for Tupelo Tom and Big Lou Talkin'. And now, here's Tupelo Tom and Big Lou.
0: I'm Tupelo Tom.
1: And I'm Big Lou. And, and we're talking.
0: And talking we are. We are talking on our second episode, Jeff. Welcome to episode two of of the Tupelo, Tom and Big Blue podcast. I'm very, very happy. We made it to two.
1: And we have to follow up our number one episode, which of course, as we found out is top 20 in the United States of America already for music commentary.
0: I'm I'm fascinated by this. You, you, you called and and texted me so excited yesterday. And uh, I don't think it's any secret to people that our schedules do not exactly align. Um, I host a early morning radio show and sleep in the afternoon. And you are pretty much on full Elvis hours, which is the clock is flipped and your midnight is noon. So there's a small window of time that you and I can actually speak in person. And you were so excited about us being in the charts. And I'm thinking we've already made the charts with one episode. We're we're like a one hit wonder podcast.
1: Well, it's certainly possible that there's only 20 episodes out there and we're last place, but I'm going (laughs) to pretend there's millions and we're top 20. So thank you, listeners, and all the people that are downloading. Uh, we've noticed several people have listened to it several times. And thank you so much for the support. And we'll just try to get better and get to that uh, top 10 spot.
0: Well, well, tell us about this chart. What what chart? Is it the Billboard Hot 100? Are we just behind Dua Lipa? Or is, there, is what category are we in?
1: Well, it's music commentary. We're 27th in Canada. So Canada, you kind of need to oh, wow. pick it up a little bit and start downloading us more.
0: I'm excited. I, I, I didn't know, I didn't know how to do a podcast uh, a month ago. Uh, we've done one and we're already on the charts, so I'm I'm very excited. Now, Jeff, you were out on the road at at festivals um, and hosting events, and especially you were in Georgia. And we're going to talk about kind of a review of Georgia. But you got a lot of reaction from people that were uh, like out there going to festivals. What was what what the what did the people think? What was the word on the street about the first episode?
1: It was so cool because I kept hearing one word and we can thank Alex Mitchell, our producer for this, how professional the podcast sounded. And usually if I'm involved, you don't hear that word a lot, but (laughs) it was really cool. And, and we forget because you and I and Alex and a lot of our, uh, the people that come to these festivals and participate and perform at the festivals, we're Elvis fanatics. We live Elvis, we breathe Elvis there are a lot of people that are kind of normal and they're just fans and they don't know or haven't heard some of the stories that we told and will continue to tell. So they're hearing it for the first time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my friends that are, have seen the movie and they're curious about Elvis now more than ever talked about how much they love the stories and loved hearing things they hadn't heard before. And a lot of the people who know the stories are getting a different perspective. And that's one of our, goals in this podcast is to not only tell stories that that we may or may not have heard but to add a little bit of a personal touch to them through our experiences and the people that we met that were involved in these stories but the the big compliment was they were entertained they loved how professional it sounded and thank you Alex for that and just thank you really for everyone that that has been listening and downloading the podcast we'll get better we'll have fun We have so many fun things planned for the year 2023, and it was just a great start to what's going to be a fun ride, I think.
0: I think one of the fascinating things about it for me is um, having spent uh, 18 years at Turner Classic Movies working there, um, we always knew that we had two or three levels of fans who were watching the network, and I really feel a lot is the same in the Elvis world. You've got the people that were there when it started, you've got the people that came on in the last 25 30 years and now we've got this new section of people that have joined us in the Elvis world since June since the movie came out that are diving in and discovering new things about this guy that they saw in this movie and i think that's one of the things that was that was the the jolt that that all of us needed uh in the Elvis world you you've seen it in the turnout at the at the at the crowds in georgia and we're seeing it uh, online. Uh, I, I have been talking about this the day that the, the movie opened. That morning, I went on to Spotify, and Elvis had, I think, 13.7 million people following him on Spotify. And just the other day, a few days ago, it was 22 million. So from June to you know this day, late in the, the, the year of 2022, as we record this, that movie is the direct effect that has been happening in streaming and in listening. And as Robert Osborne, our host at TCM used to say, Oh, how I, he used to say, Oh, how I envy people that haven't seen Citizen Kane yet, because they're going to have this amazing experience. And I feel the same way. Oh, how I envy someone who hasn't heard you know, if I can dream for the first time by Elvis and oh my goodness, what they have to discover, they've got movies to discover. they've got TV shows to discover with Elvis. They've got so many songs. and uh, that's the part that I think is is really important that we're the Elvis world is being passed on down the line and that movie's really been the the jolt that that helps us.
1: And it's funny, Tom, because you and I know all these Elvis stories. all the Elvis fans know all these stories. Yeah. We still have them in us. Well, now we get to tell them all over again. It's like, I remember back in high school, I tackled a guy for a loss and recovered a fumble. Well, everybody was there. They don't care. So now we have new people to tell these stories to. And talking about Georgia, i give you a, a really great follow-up to what you're saying. Uh, Alex and I, and a few of us went to a sports bar after sound check on Wednesday. I there's seven, eight guys there. I think the world cup was on. And everybody's talking. They asked us, by the way, St. Simon's Island, Georgia is gorgeous. Uh, It is. That whole area is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. I can't wait to go back. Of course, uh, we told them we said, well, we're doing an Elvis festival licensed by Elvis Presley Enterprises. That gives us three licensed events in the state of Georgia. Uh, My uh, Jeff Lewis and Friends Spring Festival, Jeff Lewis and Friends Fall Festival, and the Georgia Elvis Festival, all licensed by Elvis Press Enterprises. And so we love George, obviously. <laughs> and we got to talking to them, and they asked us what we were doing. We told them we are there for an Elvis event. And they were fascinated. Oh, I, I saw the movie. It was great. And as we're talking, one guy said, you know, my brother, and this is so typical, anytime you're around people, everybody has their Elvis story. Oh, my mom took me to see Elvis when I was 10, or my mom had an Elvis room, or whatever it is. This guy's brother was in the Army with Elvis, and he had pictures to prove it. So here we are in this sports bar in St. Simon's Island, and there's a connection. The festival itself, we had a total of we had two shows on Thursday, three on Friday, and two on Saturday. And except for one show, every seat was taken. One show, I think, maybe had six empty seats. And this is, I don't know, 600 people or something. And the the number of young people that were there shocked me. People in their teens and 20s, they were losing their minds uh, over the songs. And, and it was just like, a break, like we'd never done it before. And, of course, all of our regular Elvis friends and family that come to things that we love so much. And the energy was overwhelming. And I would ask every show, how many of you are here at your first Elvis tribute artist event. And it was 30, 40% of the room. We've already almost sold out for next year's Georgia Elvis festival. And then Monday, the newspaper comes out and we're all traveling. And uh, we have a a chat group on Facebook, the Georgia Elvis festival chat group, the front page of the Brunswick newspaper. That's the town right there by St. Simon's Island, the front page the top half was me wearing my Santa Claus outfit.
0: Did the headline say, be on the lookout uh, for, or, or it was. Don't,
1: it said, don't <laughs> let him fool you. He shaved his beard. Watch <laughs> out for this guy. Wow. And the bottom half of the newspaper front page was Cody Dalton. And it had an article about the Georgia Elvis festival and there's the Brunswick paper. And it talked about, they interviewed people. We didn't invite them out there. They just came and they were interviewing different people. And they interviewed a girl, I think, in her 20s who met some other girls and now they're best friends, and they're going to start traveling to these events together. And uh, that's, that's the excitement that's happening right now because of Baz and Austin and the movie. And then, of course, the guy that's continuing to make it happen, Elvis Presley. And the festival was great. The performers were great. Cody did a great job uh, on the production side. The guys were all professional and fun. The audience was incredible. Long lines for the meet and greet and the photo ops. It was just really something else. So it was a very successful festival. And that has been the trend, Tom. This year has been one of the most exciting years. We're having several events next year. As you know, you have your Nashville Festival. uh, You know, Tom, I keep saying next year, it's actually this year. So they're going to be hearing this this year, even though we're recording it in late 2022. It's that kind of time travel, a little back to the future stuff.
0: Yeah, it is. It's it's not only time travel. Uh, the Elvis birthday events that I hosted have happened and I'm sure they were incredible. Uh, my birthday has happened and uh, I'm a year older, even though I sound a year younger. So it hasn't happened yet. So it is a time travel. It's a back to the Elvis future kind of thing.
1: And I'm just wondering what I got for Christmas. I'm sure it was amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'm very excited about what I got for Christmas. I'll just say that.
0: What you got yourself.
1: What I got myself for Christmas.
0: Yeah, yeah. And Jeff, you said something there talking about the event and talking about the press coming to the event and that you guys, as the producers, didn't invite them. They came out. That means they were aware of what was going on. Um, You didn't push out to them. They didn't read it in the paper because they are the paper. And I do know from my experience in news for a number of years that sometimes reporters, especially local reporters in small towns, come out And they kind of have a preconceived notion. I don't know if you've noticed lately, but it seems like sometimes the news is biased uh, into what they want their agenda to be. (laughs) Just a little. But they came out to this event and they talked to people and they told the story of how much love there was for Elvis, how many new friends were being made. And that's a treatment of Elvis and Elvis fans that you don't see a lot. And I push that back to the fact that mainstream America and non Elvis fans have seen the movie and they have a different feeling about who the man was and, and who the fans are. So the fact that you were treated with respect and the the fans were shown with respect, that's a, that's a big turn. That's a, that's a wonderful thing because I've seen in the past, some articles that don't make people out to look exactly like the kind of people you'd want to hang with. So I, I I'm, I'm very happy that, that, that Brunswick saw your event, came and covered your event, and and made it look wonderful. And that alone is going to push it forward next year to to locals. I mean, that's the really important part. We have in our Elvis world the you know the deadheads, you know that that tour with us, so that go around from festival to festival. But it's the Elvis fans in these local communities that it's very important that we speak to. We're on Facebook promoting these festivals and ourselves. To the group of people that follow us on Facebook. They have to know us to follow us. But it's the locals in in in, in Brunswick, in that case, in Myrtle Beach, uh, for that festival in Franklin and the Nashville area for us at, at, at that festival. That's when... Uh, that becomes invaluable. That that kind of press coverage. So that's that's a wonderful thing. And the fact that, well, I, I, I did you make it above the fold, Jeff? Was the photo above the fold?
1: Yes, it was. I was, and it was the entire top half of the paper. I don't know if it's because it needed that much to fit me in, but it was just <laughs> a huge picture. It was really, it was really cool.
0: There you go. You always want to be above the fold, Jeff. Always be above the fold.
1: And I so rarely am. You know, it's funny, Tom, when you talked about. The way they treat it, is, most of the people I know, when they think of what we do, obviously there's a snicker, and the, you know they have this kind of oh my gosh, he's one of those Elvis impersonators, flying Elvis's, you know, Utah chapter, and then they see it. Then Bill Cherry takes the stage, <laughs> yeah. Dean Z takes the stage, Alex Mitchell, Cody down a, It is really cool because that guy probably came thinking, oh this will be funny, this will be a, a, a comedic thing to put in the paper. And saw the fans and saw how they reacted and saw the talent and the level of talent there. And then, of course, we're so fortunate because Elvis gave us all this music Mm -hmm. that you're gonna love that regardless. We keep talking about these events and I keep mentioning licensed event, licensed event. And you and I talk a lot um, off the air (laughs) and uh, off the podcast. That's how this got started. And you brought up something last night that I thought was real intriguing how important and why it is important that we pay for the licensing through Elvis Presley Enterprises and why that's important to Elvis, to the integrity, to the quality of the events. And you mentioned, uh, talked about that a little bit. Do you mind telling us a little mm-hmm. bit about what, do you remember what we talked about first of all?
0: I do remember. I do uh, remember. I had just gotten up from my nap. Uh, <laughs> so I, I was I was pretty clear-headed then at five o'clock in the afternoon. No, I was talking about that these licensed events, I think are so important because, uh, by doing that, you are paying a fee to EPE and they are working with you. I know for the Nashville Elvis festival that Brian Mays and myself do. And, and, uh, this year, you know, happening at the end of, end of March, uh, March 30th through April 2nd, uh, Nashville Elvis Uh, that, that, uh, It's so important. You're allowed to go into their library and to look at imagery and to find a photo of Elvis that you can use in your advertising. Nothing sells Elvis better than him and his face. And if you can put that on a poster and give people a date, um, they don't know Bill Cherry yet. They don't know Dean Z yet, but they sure know Elvis and when they come, they're going to leave being fans of all the ETAs, but it's Elvis that gets them in the door. So number one, working with them allows you to use the name and imagery of Elvis. And that's so important. It's just like when I see fans sometimes that, that don't like something and they say, well, I'm never going to, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to support EPE. Oh, great. Okay. Don't support them. Put them out of business. You'll show everybody, won't you? That's <laughs> Is that really what you want? You really want EPE out of business? But it's it's I think it's important because it shows integrity, of the producers who are taking a hit right up front by paying that fee that are going to have to recoup that in ticket sales. But it's worth it to those producers to pay that fee, to take the chance that the gross is going to be a little less than it could have been. But that's what it's about. If it was a money grab, we could call it anything and just bring some guys out on stage with tracks and make some money. You know, also, Jeff, uh, EPE back in 2007 when they started the Elvis tribute artist contests and and got into this world it was because in the year 2007 they looked around and they did, they didn't like how Elvis was being represented uh with impersonators and they wanted to kind of give something uh back to the world of the uh, Elvis fans with tribute artists and kind of giving it an official seal of approval and they asked me in in, in 7 2007 8 and 9 I was a, a judge in in Memphis for the uh, the Ultimate, and I sat between Joe Gershio and Joe Muskeo. They certainly knew what they were looking at. Joe Gershio being Elvis's conductor, and Joe Muskeo being a member of the Imperials who performed, you know, on stage with Elvis. They knew what they were looking at, and it's it's something that was very important to them to uh, to try to bring a quality control to the to the world of the tribute artist. And I, I think that still continues. And that license fee goes toward helping them establish that. And a lot of the festivals, uh, some of the ones that, uh, that Code is doing and that you're doing, they're not qualifiers, but it's important to you to be able to, to, to support the EPE company and the Elvis world and being able to present that. And for, of course, for all of the uh, festivals that are qualifiers, you pay that fee and you have your tribute artist that you send from your festival to the Super Bowl, which is the ultimate Elvis tribute artist contest in August to hopefully win that. So that's just a little history, quick history of, you know, why that, that uh, EPE association is so important. And I I think a lot of the new fans don't understand that this is in the, in the world of, uh, of Elvis, this tribute artist world has been going on officially uh, uh, sanctioned by EPE since 2007. And
1: you know, EPE is not getting rich off our licensing fees by any stretch of the imagination, but it's, it's enough that it, it does require an investment and does require a commitment to be the best and have some integrity and quality. And I can assure you Elvis Presley tribute artists, producers like myself, we're not um, buying mansions of what we make. We are trying to make a living and have some fun and make some memories. And it is worth the sacrifice we make because we're getting, I mean, I actually get to once or twice a month, pretty much, be around some of my best friends, uh, my Elvis family. And I get to talk Elvis and get up on stage. And because of the fans and because of what Elvis left us with the material he left us with, I get to tell jokes, sing every now and then Elvis music and talk to tell Elvis stories. Now I'm in a podcast with my best friends because of Elvis Presley, Elvis Presley enterprises, the fans, the family. So it is, it is really important to maintain that credibility and, and um, to make that kind of commitment. So it's it's it really is an honor and really cool.
0: Yeah, and that's why we're talking. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. We've looked uh, at what happened in the past. We're going to look at what's coming up in the future for the month of February. We're going to also sh- share some stories about a special person in the Elvis world that is having a birthday during the month of uh, February. And we're also going to have a date with Elvis. We're going to take a look at some important days in the month of February. That is all coming up because we are not done talking. Tupelo Tom back with Big Lou and we are talking and uh, right now we are talking about a date with Elvis. And uh, we're going to take a look at the month of February and see kind of some days that might be important to Elvis and the Elvis world and the Elvis fans. And we start off with February 1 being a very special day, a birthday Uh, Turning 55 this year on February 1st, Lisa Marie Presley, born on February 1st, 1968. And it's an interesting thing that as you go to Graceland and and you look around, one of the first things you see in the living room, right there to the right as you walk in down that long sofa, you see the photos of Lisa everywhere. Because the the thing I love about Graceland is it is a home. Uh, It is uh, a father who had photographs of his Little girl all around the living room and uh it it's it's a wonderful thing to to see her represented there and throughout the years at Graceland, as i've been going um, th- they have had displays uh, Angie Marchese and her staff there in the archives have had amazing uh displays of the history of Lisa with her toys out at Christmas time. You see toys there 's a big bird stuffed animal that Lisa got when she was a little girl, and it 's played with and there's gifts out there that she got. And and so I just love how her life has been reflected uh throughout the archive uh projects that that Angie has come up with. And uh and also knowing that that Lisa, when she comes home, uh Angie told me one of the first things she does is she gets Elvis's wallet, uh, which still has credit cards in it, uh, which still has uh that little pl remember those little plastic things with the photos that you could put in your wallet? Oh wow, those were the days. Elvis had those, and there are photographs of Lisa in those little plastic sheets. And Angie said as an archivist, she should really be saving all those things separately to preserve them. But Elvis's little girl wants her daddy's wallet, and it's still exactly the way it was. Uh, so I, I think that's a wonderful story that kind of tells you who Lisa is. There's such a, a love of, of daddy um, I've met her a few times, and, and it's kind of surreal when you're talking to her, and she's referring to Daddy, and you remember, oh yeah, Elvis. Oh yeah, that's Daddy. Okay, hmm. yeah, okay. Uh, and 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 the respect that she has for the fans, the love she has for the fans, and and my other favorite story about her is that when she comes home and stays, uh, they will go up to the mansion uh, after tours, and they will take down Angie and her staff will take down all the the ropes and all the plastic. And Lisa and her fr- family have free run of the house because it's her home. It's not a museum to her. It's her home. And uh, they cater in food, and they eat around the, the table, and they eat in the kitchen, and they walk around. And it's it's for, for her kids, it's their grandfather's home. And for Lisa, it's home. It's where she grew up. So happy birthday on February 1st, uh, her 55th birthday, Lisa Marie.
1: That is incredible. And, Tom, it's easy to forget. I, I've met, matter of fact, I toured. With Dean Hall, with a a band that we had for several years, Tom T. Hall's son. I've met, you know, Michael Twitty, several people whose fathers were famous, not Elvis Presley famous, but it is a unique phenomenon. They are just their dad or their mom, whatever the case may be. Yeah. And you forget Elvis was a very doting and loving father. And it's Lisa Marie's father. Mm-hmm. And it, it must be a, a strange thing to see all of us who are just fanatical fans of Elvis and talk, sometimes, you know, there, there are these Facebook pages where people go, well, Elvis would have, or Elvis wouldn't have. And I think to myself, you have no idea what Elvis would have or would not have done. Mm-hmm. And it's gotta be strange for her. And and I'm just thankful that she is still so involved with, with the fans and with the Elvis world. And it was really touching when the movie came out and they had that moment with Austin and her sitting in the jungle room. Yeah. He's playing guitar and they were just talking and and you could tell for the first time it, it she even talked about this when we went to the movie premiere that she said, they got it right. They got my dad right. It was really incredible.
0: Yeah. And imagine seeing your family's story you know, your grandmother, your grandfather, Vernon and Gladys, seeing that story of those people. So, you know, it's it's uh, it's interesting. I went back, and I, I love history, and I went back and looked, and on the newspaper, in the, uh, the the morning paper in Memphis when I was growing up was the Commercial Appeal. The afternoon paper was the Memphis Press Cemetery. And uh, the afternoon, I think it was the afternoon of February 1st, maybe the morning, uh, Commercial Appeal, uh, front page news, Lisa Marie Presley, you know, uh, Elvis's daughter. And there... Also in the paper, and, and I, I'm not sure if it was on the first page or over in there, was um, news of some uh, so, uh, a few men who were killed uh, in a, a garbage truck. And and that was the impetus for what brought, brought Martin Luther King. They had a strike of garbage workers in Memphis, uh, and that was the impetus that brought Martin Luther King several times to Memphis to... Um, to, to march peacefully march in protest of the conditions of the garbage workers and uh, I just think it's interesting that on the day that news came out with those men uh, dying that, that the big news was was Lisa Marie So she's just a part of the thread of the history of Memphis and uh, that is her hometown and like you said when we saw her at the uh, at the movie premiere, you know, she said over the last few years, really, that she'd had, she's had a very difficult time, you know, personally, and that there are not many things that would get her out of the house. But this movie was important enough to do that. So I just I love seeing her when she's there and, and she's always been very nice to me. And uh, people have always asked me, you know, who are your favorite interviews uh, during Elvis week? And I always say, well, Priscilla is number one, uh, because just I never know what she's going to talk about. But Lisa is up there uh, because it's always a pleasure to, to, to talk with her and to have her say, you know, I've, I've gotten her to say some things that you can tell that she's thinking that she doesn't do press enough that she's got pat answers. So when you talk to her, she's really thinking about what you've, what you've asked and really speaking from her heart. So she's an, um, an amazing person.
1: I heard her on Howard Stern and it was, you know, of course he's a great interviewer as well, just as you are. And, It was, you know, of course he was trying to maybe get some information from her that in a very Howard Stern way. And she was just so confident said, I'm not going to answer that. I'm not going to answer that. Yeah. But she was also so honest and, and genuine uh, and very real. And I don't know how that's humanly possible given the, the way the life she grew up in and who, who was her father, but uh, very impressive. And I've met her once and she couldn't have been nicer.
0: Yeah. It was interesting uh, knowing uh, Jerry Schilling and Priscilla uh, several years ago at the Peabody. Uh, we were there, and my wife and I were hanging out in a corner over in the lobby bar. And over in the corner at a big sofa w- w- was Jerry and Joe Gershio, Elvis's conductor, and, and Lisa and um, uh, Priscilla. And at one point, one of Priscilla's bodyguards came over and said, You know, Priscilla would like to invite you over to. To to hang out, and we were like, okay, well, I guess we'll go. And in talking to Lisa, sitting on the sofa, um, you know, Jerry said, "You remember Tom?" And 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 I, I have the Jerry Schilling seal of approval with Lisa, so that means a lot because she she's known Jerry since the day she was born. And sitting in the lobby, talking to her, she was going to be performing in several days, three or four days, at the Grand Ole Opry. She was very nervous, very excited about performing as a singer at the Grand Ole Opry. And I and we're sitting there and. I, I just, it's, you know, have you ever done one of those things, Jeff, where you say something to someone and you forget you're talking to a celebrity and you say something and it's the moment you say it, you're thinking, I really shouldn't have probably said that. Yes. This could go bad immediately. Uh, I said to her, well, I heard, I certainly hope you have a better reaction on the Grand Ole Opry than your father did.
1: <laughs> I was just and thinking she,
0: that. And <laughs> she looked at me and said, what, what, what do you mean? And I said, well, uh, and I thought, well, I got to go all the way now. I got to tell the rest of this. I said, well, yeah, the, the, the legend is uh, that when Elvis performed on the Grand Ole Opry, they said to him after his performance, uh, you, you better go back to Memphis and go back to driving a truck. But I'm sure it won't be like that with you. <laughs> well, so that weekend or the following weekend when she was on the Grand Ole Opry, uh, I was listening to it. And after one of the songs, I like to think I reminded her of this. She may have just been, you know, having fun with me in the lobby there. But, uh, she said after the song. She said, "Well, I'm glad you like that. I I really don't know how to drive a truck." <laughs> and it was kind of a it was kind of a throwaway. You had to kind of know what she was talking about. But I thought that's for all the Elvis fans out there that are thinking exactly Jeff what you were thinking when you think of Grand Ole Opry and a Presley. Any old time fan knows Elvis was not taken with the Grand Ole Opry, and neither with him with, with him. And that's why the Louisiana Hayride became his kind of radio home.
1: Well, it's funny because. I doubt that she has read his biographies or read those stories because it was her dad. So it's kind of like, I don't really go to my dad and say, so dad, uh, that first job (laughs) interview you had, how did that go? So she probably did not know that story. That is great. I'm glad you like it because I don't drive a truck. That's beautiful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. That Lisa Marie's got a birthday in February. We ha- There's another uh, iconic birthday in February. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show, but also another date uh, that happened in February, February 3rd, 1958. It was the day the music died. Buddy Holly, the big bopper, Richie Valens killed in a plane crash. February third, nineteen fifty-eight. Elvis, at the time, stationed in Germany, and I read that he uh, found out about it the next afternoon while he was uh, on duty as a soldier there in uh, in, in Germany. And I, I had a question about this because it's an iconic date, and we know it is the day the music died. Um, and my question to you, being the music musician Grammy nominated that you are, um, would we still be talking about those three guys with the day the music died if it hadn't been? for the song, the Don McLean song, The Day the Music Died. Um, A lot of other rock stars have have been killed, and I'm not taking anything away from Buddy and the Bopper and Richie Valens, Um, but what, what, what do you think, what part do you think that song played in this legend that we still talk about those three guys?
1: I think a huge part. I think Buddy Holly, because of his songwriting and the insane amount of songs he wrote in such a short time, And great songs. I think he's somebody that would have been there in our conscious and and in the music history. You know, Paul McCartney obviously being influenced by Buddy Holly is one of his main influences. Uh, You may have heard of him. He's with a group called the Beatles. Um, (laughs) And I think Buddy Holly's legacy would have still been there. But it's interesting because we talk about the Elvis movie and how that has opened up Elvis to a whole generation of fans the Buddy Holly story with Gary Busey Mm -hmm. really turned me on to Buddy Holly when I was a kid. I I think I might've had the greatest hits album or something. I may have bought it because of the movie. Then suddenly I'm a huge Buddy Holly fan, Richie Valens. I mean, I knew La Bamba. I knew that song, but I probably, he would not have probably been on my radar except for the Don McLean song. And sadly the, the, the plane crash. Then the movie comes out, La Bamba, and the whole story, his life story comes out. Now I know a ton of Richie Valens material. Now, I had no idea. Uh, the big bopper, I, I probably would not have known who he is, and now, of course, we do. So I think it played a huge part in it, sadly, but that's kind of our culture, isn't it? You know, there's a lot of, you know, our culture is attracted to stories, both tragic and happy and sad, et cetera, but I think that had a lot to do with their legacy and why we still know them today and how they got movies made about them. Thank goodness. So that we got introduced to music. I probably never would have heard, especially in the case of Richie Valens.
0: Yeah. And, and I remember um, I looked it up because uh, in, in looking at this day, the music died. I do remember myself, the Buddy Holly movie. It came out um, May of 1978, the month I graduated high school. I was still here in Tupelo working at the movie theaters at the Malco and I showed the Buddy Holly story, uh, you know, three times a day throughout that summer. And I remember, because you didn't have any way to look up immediate information about films, I just thought, are, are these songs this good? I mean, was this really? Because I did read an article that said that that uh, Gary Busey was doing his own singing in the movie. He was playing his own instruments and and doing his own singing. And I remember getting the eight track. Uh, to Buddy Holly's greatest hits. And it's got like a brick wall on it uh, is the cover of the album. And it's like Buddy's 20 biggest hits or something. And and it was, and I just remember that was, um, that was the music that I got a guitar and started trying to learn how to play EA and B7, because I figured out if I could play those three chords, I could pretty much play Buddy Holly music. And those are still the only three chords I know, but I have a friend called a capo now that I can change keys on, <laughs> on things. But that was the music that... It, it, funny, it wasn't Elvis. Uh, it was Buddy Holly, because Buddy had that same thing the Beatles had, which was you watch it and it seems so simple, you think, I can do that. And you can't, because it's Buddy Holly and it's the Beatles, but you have that feeling. Uh, and I've always felt that. My other artist I love is Tom Petty, because he made it sound so simple um, but there's a really good documentary. I don't know if you've seen it on the making of Don McLean's song "The Day the Music Died," called strangely enough "The Day the Music Died," and it's this whole documentary about how Don McLean came to writing that. I mean, that's a that's a poem. Yes. Um, if you just if you just read it, it's a poem, and it really tells the history of the United States. I put it up there with um, Billy Joel's song about you know history and those kind of "We Didn't Start the Fire" about things that were happening in the world. There are allusions. Um, you know, the jester stole his thorn of crowns, the jester, you know, uh being uh, Bob Dylan and the Beatles stealing the throne, stealing the crown from Elvis. The, so there's all this kind of symbolism within the lyrics of the song and the poem uh that that people can can look up themselves. But it's 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 interesting. And then the deeper you get into it, something not dealt with in the movie as the years pass by, and I read about it, and realizing. Who was in Buddy Holly's band? Uh, Waylon Jennings yes. playing bass with Buddy Holly. By this time now, the, the original Crickets have left Buddy, so he's got musicians that are the Crickets, but one of them being Waylon Jennings.
1: Yes, and and of course I have a great Waylon story. You know, he he's in interviews he said this, but I was very fortunate. Waylon used to hang out. There was a Logan's restaurant uh, on music row when I lived in Nashville and Elvis, uh, Elvis I wish Elvis was there. <laughs> Waylon was there a lot. And so I would just go hang out at the end of the bar and look over and say, well, there's, there's Waylon Jennings. And it, and the more I get, went over there and the more he saw me, uh, he would always acknowledge me and he just talked to people. He was just there hanging out at the bar, you know, and it'd always be during the day. And I got lucky one day he was just in a very talkative mood. And you talk about asking a celebrity something. Then you just kind of go, oh, wait, did that just come out of my mouth? And I asked him if he ever got over what happened that day. (laughs) And then the second I said it, I thought, you idiot. And he looked at me like we'd been talking about it for years. And, of course, for those that don't know the story, um, there was only so much room on the plane. And so Waylon flipped a coin with the big bopper. And whoever won the coin toss got to go on the plane. Apparently the bus was old and it was freezing, obviously a lot of snow. And of course, the big bopper uh, infamously won that coin toss and Waylon walked away and buddy had heard about it and came up and said something to, to Waylon about boy, I hope that uh, bus of yours breaks down. And he goes, well, I hope that plane of yours crashes. And to this day that is haunted Waylon that somehow he had some kind of impact on that which of course is impossible did you ever hear the story that i think it was fairly recently the farmer that owned that property was towing up land and they found buddy's glasses
0: that i hadn't heard but in the documentary they talk about that piece of property and how off the off the road it is and how uh, the owners have still respected that area and there's a kind of a walkway out into the field um it's a lot like when I was on the way to the Louisiana Elvis Festival last year uh going down 55 out of Mississippi into uh Louisiana and uh seeing the signs and deciding spur of the moment uh Leonard Skinner crash site I'm like yes I'm I'm going to go here and it's about 7 or 8 miles off the off the highway out in the woods and uh there's just a marker there and a flag and the story of what happened um you really you, you really get the feeling of of how desolate those those deaths were when you go to places like that, and you see, and you think about the fact that it happened at night, and in Buddy's case, it happened during a snowstorm, and uh, it, it's it's amazing. There, like I said, that documentary really kind of opens your eyes a, a lot to the story of those people, that song, and and Don McLean, who really kind of channeled putting that that story out through through that song. That song was very important to him. He said in, in getting it out
1: and, you know, talk about, it's pretty cool when you can write a song, they do a documentary about that's pretty impressive. And <laughs> you know, people w- were concerned with the Elvis movie that not everything's factual. Although there's some anachronisms here and there. Well, the buddy Holly story with Gary Busey, several things weren't accurate about that, but it was a great story. It introduced buddy to so many people. That was the point of the film. Of course, Gary Busey was phenomenal. I'll, I know he got nominated for an Oscar. I can't remember. He might've won it.
0: He did not. He did not, but he Oscar nominated.
1: Yeah. And then of course, La Bomba, I'm sure that was just kind of a, you know, there's no way to know that, you know, Richie Valance wasn't around long enough Yeah, to document like they, they did Elvis, but, uh, but it told us basically who he was and the essence of what he was. And, and uh, thank, thank goodness for both those films. And now a whole world knows buddy, Holly and Richie Valance and big bopper. And, uh, may they rest in peace,
0: yeah and uh I, I i know that some of our friends have played the surf ballroom mm-hmm. uh in shows uh the the final place that uh, that buddy and the and the guys all all had that show and and I've seen some photos uh, of the surf ballroom and it it looks like it looked in in nineteen fifty eight amazing and uh I know some of our friends have have played that ballroom and it's very important like a, a show of respect to really understand where they are in the history of that place.
1: That's definitely a bucket list for me. I want to see that in the, and the site and pay my respects.
0: Another day in February is February 14th, 1964, a date with Elvis important to him on this day, Valentine's day in 1964. Um, do you know the legend of Elvis and St. Jude and FDR's yacht?
1: No, I want you to tell it, but you know what, Tom? I have to call you out on something pretty important. Pretty, What's that? Pretty, pretty, pretty important. February 11th, a little thing happened. Oh, yeah. A guy named Burt Reynolds was born, February 11th,
0: 1936.
1: Look at you. <laughs> so we cannot forget W.W., The Bandit, etc.
0: Uh, to me, Bert was neither born nor died. He just is. Yes.
1: That's a great way to put it. I'm sitting right next to, uh, here in my mini museum, as we do this podcast to the leather wristband that Bert Reynolds wore in WWE, the Dixie dance Kings. For those who have not seen that movie, it's very (laughs) difficult to find. I have a copy of it and, uh, you can come over and watch it with me. All right. So tell the great, you've told me this story. I had no idea, but about the yacht,
0: uh, and, and I tell you this, uh, based on uh, every year at my radio station, Sunny 93.3 in Tupelo, we have an app. You can listen to us from anywhere in the world. Uh, we do a St. Jude Radiothon. Uh, and it's always the Thursday and Friday after Thanksgiving. And we go on the air at 6 a.m. And we're all the way on Thursday and Friday from 6 a.m. to 7 p.m. 13 hours each day. 26 hours in, in two days. Um, and I did that math off the top of my head, by the way. <laughs> And we are on uh, playing songs and stories of the the families and the and the kids of St. Jude. And one of the things that we get is we get this you know information packet of stories about about uh, St. Jude there in Memphis. One of the original contributors, one of the original uh, cheerleaders for um, St. Jude was Elvis uh, Danny Thomas. It first of all, St. Jude opened in February of 1962. So it is celebrating its 61st birthday in the year 2023. And Tom,
1: this is impressive. I mean, do you have a calculator? Is this off the top of your head? Were you this the is, uh, head of your math class?
0: Around hour 25, you start remem- remembering this stuff when you're talking <laughs> about it. I can I can do 26 hours on St. Jude if you want, but um, I don't know if Alex has enough reel-to-reel tape to, to record <laughs> this. Um, Because that is the source of uh, what he's, Alex is very old school. He's recording this on reel to reel, which is nice. But, um, so Elvis is one of the uh, original contributors to St. Jude. And when you go there, if you get to visit, there's a a wall of donors. And it's really almost maybe the only original part of the building left. They've been expanding over the years, but there's Elvis Presley's name right up there engraved in stone that uh, one of the original contributors. And he wanted to do something uh, also later on after it had opened in 62. So on February 64, Elvis and Colonel Parker came up with the idea, which means Colonel Parker came up with the idea of, of doing a publicity event of which Elvis would benefit with good press and St. Jude would benefit because they were standing next to Elvis. And that means Danny Thomas. So they found FDR's yacht, um, which is uh, an amazing event. It, this yacht had, had been l- like lying in disrepair, the Potomac, and it was uh, actually uh, a, a, a yacht that they got and they started rehabbing it and the cost of rehabbing it was going to be so much, they decided that what we'll do is we'll just, we'll just fix the side of the yacht that's facing the press. And, 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 I, and, and Elvis is donating this yacht to St. Jude and Danny Thomas said, you know, I, I'm not in the Navy. I don't need a boat. Why do why am I getting a boat? But they came up with well, we'll just auction off the the, the yacht to someone, and that'll be a money raiser for St. Jude, and it'll be a tax benefit for Elvis and you know all of his people. And so they did that; they auctioned it off, fifty five thousand dollars. All the press covered it. But here's the part of it that that I think is so interesting. This happened February fourteenth, nineteen sixty four. That's five days after the Beatles' debut on the Ed Sullivan Show. Wow. And if you go on and look it up, there at the event is Elvis and Danny Thomas with a big St. Jude sign behind them. So they're getting their press for St. Jude. But there's also a photo made that day of Elvis reading a fan magazine. And you see the Beatles' faces on this magazine. It's like the king is looking at these four guys five days after Ed Sullivan, knowing what Ed Sullivan did to his career. And and I, I could just, I look at that photo and I think he's just looking at that going all right, here we go. Here's the next, here's the next. He's
1: about to watch another ride.
0: Here's the next group of competitors going after me. And, uh, I I just think that's an interesting story, story that, that ceremony, a guy from, um, Beverly Hills bought the yacht and the yacht kind of the history of the yacht is a movie or a documentary itself. It ended up being a drug runner boat. I mean, it's just got a, (laughs) a a weird history to it. And, uh, I think it's still there. I think it's actually uh, on display. Um, at a historic landmark in Oakland, California. It's a, because it's FDR's yacht, the president, you know, Roosevelt's yacht and the, the Elvis story, just a small bit of history with that, with that yacht. But uh, I, I'm waiting on the, uh, the Potomac documentary. <laughs>
1: well, you know, there's a great movie, Billy Crystal. I think he wrote it and directed it, but he stars in it called Mr. Saturday night. And it's about a comedian who almost, he he had just a touch of success but everything kept happening. For example, his TV show was successful, but then Daniel Boone, that show was in yep. his. And one of the great spins on it, he finally gets on the Ed Sullivan show, but he follows the Beatles <laughs> story of my life.
0: And, and I can, uh, you know, because this podcast is about our life and you know what we've been through. Uh, I did the junket, uh, for Mr. Saturday night in Toronto, uh, when it came out and, you know, I'll say 93 and it'll be 94. And somebody will send me an email and go, you're wrong. It was 94. So early (laughs) nineties. Um, and I did the, the junket and they, when you do things like that, you know, the, the, the movie studios fly you to, in this case, Toronto, when you do an interview with Billy and the cast of the film. And I went back to St. Louis and edited my little interviews into pieces for the news on my TV station. And, you know my buddy Dino Lally from Oklahoma, he was there doing interviews for Oklahoma City and Gino Salmon from Milwaukee was there, and he did his interviews and Scott Patrick from Denver was there, and George Pinocchio from San Diego at the time was there. So you do your little interviews and these and it runs in your market. But when you do these interviews, they really don't like you to ask for an autograph, ask for pictures, you know, because you're a professional. you have things to do and they're they're moving on down the line to the next interview. So I'm at the airport. The next day, leaving to fly back to St. Louis, where I was, and I see Billy in the line it, it, it Customs, like you're, you know, you're going through the thing, and I kind of maneuver around and stuff, and I end up with Billy in, in in line, and and we're talking, and I was just thinking, this is the first line I think I've ever been in, and probably the last one where I where I was just thinking, this can take as long as it needs, <laughs> I don't care how long, I'm, ta- and it's just me and Billy talking and i had the press kit from the movie and i said hey billy can i get uh, can i get you to sign something for me he goes sure man um which i, I w- w- the thing i remember i said to billy was and I remember when this was this was after harry met sally and all those great you know comedies that billy does where he's this, this cute guy that women love and i say you have done so much for guys that look like me <laughs> that want to date beautiful women and he says what do you mean i said we are not the best looking people in the world. We have confidence and we make women laugh. And he goes, and laughing is number one. And I just said, thank you for all the guys that look like us. Thank you, Billy for, you know, all those movies. But so I get the photo out and I hand him the photo and it's a photo of him in character with a cigar as Buddy Young Jr. Right. That's the character, Buddy Young Jr. And he takes the Sharpie and he's getting ready to sign it. And he goes, do you want me to sign it as Billy or do you want me to sign it as buddy young jr? And this is before the movie hasn't opened yet. It's two months before the movie opens. I said, you know what, Billy, I'll see you down the road at another movie. I'll get you to sign that picture. I want buddy young jr to sign this one. And he, and he wrote to Tom, you suck buddy young jr. <laughs> A very buddy young jr kind of thing. And I have that photo framed and it's right over there in my, I'm in my office as I do this. It's uh next to my wall of Burt that I have here, but I have Billy Crystal and people look at that and go, what is Buddy Young Jr. And if you know, you kn- it's one of those, if you know, you know,
1: there's a great, uh, line in that movie where he's young and he's at a show and there's a very large man heckling him. And he said, sir, there's two words you need to learn. I'm full. <laughs> that was a very fun story by Tupelo top. So that's a little segment we're going to be featuring. And right here, uh, well, here's our jingle. You can hear it. Fun stories by Tupelo Tom and Big Loop. <laughs> That's right. This is going to be a segment we do where we tell stories like that one. I love that story, Tom. And, you know, hey, folks, uh, email us and sing that jingle for us. We might just use it in one of our podcasts. We'd love to hear you do that.
0: I don't know how you sing it into an email, but I'm sure they'll figure that part out. <laughs>
1: That's right. It's called an MP something. I don't know what that is.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Um, But there's another very important date. Uh, you, you've got one you're going to tell us about, but this would have happened after February 14th. It's a crucial date in American history, possibly world history. I don't mean to exaggerate, but it was the day the future Pottawatomie champion was born.
0: Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. February
1: 18th. February 18th, 1967. So now we can continue on the other dates that, you know, had some relevance, but that's a very important one to remember.
0: Well, I just wanted to quickly ask you, you know, what were your thoughts that day?
1: I remember it was dark and then got really bright. (laughs) That's about all I remember. It's kind of been dark ever since.
0: It's kind of like driving to Pottawatomie. It was dark and then it got very light. It
1: really with a lot of snow and a lot of wind and very cold.
0: I will never forget that photo, Jeff, of you in the hoodie. And I thought he's not only, he's sending this photo out on Facebook to actually, hopefully, you know, this, this is like the last will and Testament because I, that photo is, I don't know that I'm going to make it or not. Goodbye world.
1: And for those of you that don't know, which of course would be a shocker, uh, they had had a contest. I wish they still had it. It was so much fun in, um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, at the Potawatomi casino. And I was, fortunate enough to win it. Uh, and you may have heard. And, uh, but it was a great contest, a lot of fun, but getting up there the year that I won, there was a blizzard. And I remember driving and not really being sure if I was even on a road and I had to pull off and I had a hoodie on and took a picture of my poor dad, uh, was so nervous. His advice, I had to keep the car running for heat. He said, well, just roll the window down. And I thought, okay, it would be really cold then. But uh, (laughs) anyway, and I remember thinking the next day they'd shut the highway down. I said, well, I got to get there. And so I just started driving and it was scary. I'm sliding all over. And I remember right as I hit Indiana, there was a police officer in the middle of the road, pulled me over and gave me a ticket for driving on a closed road, which of course was the highway. So I took the exit, took a left, took a right, hit the Illinois state line. And it was like driving in the middle of the summer. The roads were clear as, as a, a California in the summertime. It was, it was just a crazy weekend.
0: And so that they don't have that contest anymore.
1: No, they don't have it anymore. Uh, Rachel who ran it left. She's doing another, some exciting things, I think down in Florida. And so they, I think they still have events, but it was a real, it was kind of Elvis week for Milwaukee, uh, in in early January, and it was a, a lot of fun, a lot of great memories.
0: Well, that must be a load off your shoulders then, because as the largest uh, purse winner, uh, the biggest amount of money ever uh, in uh, Pottawatomie history, your record now will always stand.
1: And I I'm I'm keep waiting for the the call where they erect the statue, but uh, I'm sure it's coming. It's just you know. Things are real busy with COVID and everything. It kind of slowed things up. But I'm I'm hoping that happens soon.
0: Well, they're putting it out on that uh, closed highway.
1: <laughs> right, right in the middle of the highway. Don't drive Just right here. in the middle
0: of the highway. All right, the other date with Elvis uh, during the month of February. And this one I think is very interesting. Uh, Elvis on February 27th, 28th, and then March 1st of 1970 did shows at the Houston Astrodome uh the Houston Livestock and Rodeo which was a big deal at the time at the Astrodome which if you've seen the Astrodome back in history books or if you got to attend any event at the Astrodome which I did uh not really built for concerts a little thing called Echoing went on there and uh they had to get a hold of that Elvis did matinees and evening shows uh and, and the interesting thing I think about this is I found the uh the uh, ad for it uh The Houston Rodeo in 1970, Elvis was there on February 27th, 28th, and March 1st. Then Charlie Pride was there on March 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. Bobby Goldsboro on March 5th. Buck and Roy, Buck Owens and Roy Clark, stars of TV's Hee Haw, were there on March 6th, 7th, and 8th. And that was the week. But the interesting thing in the Elvis world is that the uh, events, the concerts there at the Astrodome in February were Elvis's first concerts outside of Vegas since his Vegas opening in the summer of 69. So he did the summer engagement in 69. He did February of 1970, where the On Stage album was recorded. And then later that month in February, closes at the International, heads on down to Houston to the Astrodome.
1: Tom, let me ask you, if you are playing to a sold-out theater in Las Vegas, the International, you're opening this hotel, perhaps one of the most exciting tours and concert concert run ever. And then the next venue you play is the Houston Astrodome in Texas. Would you say you're having some pretty good success?
0: You're having good success. And, and, and the weird part about it, if you've ever, if you've heard the CD, I think there's a bootleg out there, uh, that somehow I ended up with, it's called event number eight. And on the lineup in the program, you know, like, um, uh, steer roping was event number four and barrel running was event number five. And, oh, look, event number eight is Elvis in concert. And the the, the pictures and photos and a little bit of footage I've seen, he comes out onto the, the – the band is playing on a flatbed truck in the middle of the field of the Astrodome. The stands are full of fans. He's 100 yards away from everybody. There's nobody on the field because it's dirt. It's a rodeo. There's no orchestra. It's just the rhythm section, the suites. Uh, The backup singers, I think it was probably the Imperials, and Elvis and the the guys, the TCB band. So it's the Vegas show with no horns. So Elvis is in the middle of the Astrodome. The music is bouncing all over the place. He said it took seconds for it to get out to the crowd, seconds for their reaction to come back to him. So everything was kind of out of sync uh, during those shows. So he said they just bore down and and did it. And uh, to me, listening to it and thinking about what they were going through, it reminds me of those early films of the Beatles in concert where audience can't hear anything. Performers couldn't hear anything. And, and even back with the blue moon boys with DJ and bill and Scotty with Elvis, when the fans were screaming in the theaters and DJ said, you know, all I did was just follow Elvis's butt. Cause I, I, I couldn't hear what he was saying, but I knew what the rhythm was by how his butt was moving. So he said, I just played with that. A little bit of that there during the Houston rodeo uh, shows.
1: So that was actually one of the few times in life. Elvis could say, this was my first rodeo.
0: <laughs> Another date with Elvis in the month of February, the Jungle Room recording sessions. This is the first session of the year uh, in February. Uh, it's the 2nd through the 8th, 1976. Elvis didn't want to go into the studio, so they brought the studio to Elvis. And uh, Elvis, as recorded uh, live uh, at the... Elvis Presley Boulevard and the Moody Blue album had songs from these sessions. There's another session uh, that happened in October of that year. So they parked the mobile trucks out in the back and they ran the cables in and the they just brought the entire they moved the furniture back and they brought the band into the jungle room. Tell us
1: about when you got to interview James and everybody. You've done a couple of things. First of all, you got to do that, and I want to hear about that because it's so cool. I want the the audience to hear about it. But you have been able to with your conversation series. Um, with Angie, you've been able to go on the other side of that velvet rope. And I think all of us just stare at the jungle room and go, "Can I just go over there and sit down for just a minute? You actually get got to give tours on the other side of that velvet r- uh, rope and also do something really cool, a project that was really cool about the jungle room sessions.
0: yeah, I mean, i've I've done a couple of events there. Uh, the first one for the 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 team from Sony. Um, a number of years ago, we, we had, uh, David Briggs who played keyboard, um, James Burton on guitar, uh, Norbert Putnam who played bass and, and, and Ronnie Tut on drums. And we had them sitting down in the jungle room for an interview with me. And, uh, I, I had them in the, in the back in that little area to the side, um, where they have special exhibits there at Graceland and the Sony guys said, well, you know, we're ready, come on in. And I just thought of this at the last second being an old TV producer, and I told Sony, I said, you know what you should do? Um, Roll the cameras and let them walk into the jungle room from the outside so you see them walking by the windows. Because they hadn't been in all together since the sessions in 76. They've individually been back to Graceland, but they'd never been back in as a group. And I said, let them walk in and let's see what happens. And so they walked into the jungle room and Jeff, it was the coolest thing. Each guy went to where they stood during the sessions. So Ronnie made his way over, his back was to the fountain, the you know, on the wall. That's where the drums were. And James went over and stood where he stood and David stood where he stood. It, it was just fascinating. And and Putt stood over by the where the stereo is now, that's where he was standing. So they all went to their little areas and they just started telling stories. And, and uh, it's better than any questions you could ask because their memories started coming back and they talked about what it was like to to do those sessions. And James told these great stories about how um, that Elvis was um, really not in the mood because, you know, I guess this was kind of the first case of working from home. You know, uh, that's a, that's a phrase we use now where, you know, it's a work from home, but a recording studio at home, you know, all these pop stars today have studios at home. <laughs> well, Elvis was the first. And with the band downstairs, it was hard to get Elvis downstairs. And they said the first couple of nights when he came down, he would grab somebody and take them individually upstairs to his bedroom and he would go through his closet and start giving out shirts and and clothes and jewelry and stuff. And we did this session for fans um, at another event with James where fans uh, paid to come in and we told stories in the jungle room. Only 10 people sitting in chairs there on the stairs leading into the jungle room. And I played some excerpts from some of the outtakes uh, from the jungle room session. So we got to hear the chatter of Elvis and the guys in there. And they were telling stories about that. James still has the shirt that Elvis gave him that night on the hanger. It was on when he gave it to him. Cause it was a big flowery puffy shirt uh, that James still has.
1: That is amazing. You know, there's a, if you're facing the jungle room as a, when you're touring Graceland and I, I can't remember the name of the bird, but there's a room to the right. I never knew what that was.
0: The bird room. Yeah.
1: And and so these birds, I guess they, they kind of shut the room off and got rid of the birds because they would remember names of girls that weren't supposed to be at Graceland.
0: Well, that, and they would just, they would learn terminology that some of the mafia was using and, uh, Dodger uh, Elvis's grandmother did not like that language in the house. Th- the The mafia was very careful about how they spoke around Dodger, but the Minor Birds did not really care. <laughs> and so, but that bird, that closet was forever and still today referred to as the bird closet. There's a window uh, to it that's covered up with curtain when you're standing at the stairs of the of the kitchen, looking down into the jungle room because that was the back patio, uh, you know, back at the in the day before they enclosed that. So there's an exterior window that's now interior that goes to that closet. But the, yeah, they, they had the birds in that closet. At it, it, one time, uh, Graceland it, it was a zoo. I mean, Scatter, the monkey was there. They had the minor birds. They had dogs. They had all kinds of stuff. And horses are still there. So Elvis loved his animals, but uh, I'm always fascinated. I love these Jungle Room sessions because when when that album came out in '76 and those albums in '77, that was I was a teenager, and those were the records. Those were the records that I started listening to, and I thought Elvis is sad. Like all those songs are just very heartfelt love songs, and and there's a whole group of songs from the mid '70s on into '76 that are, are just even as a teenager, I'm I'm looking at them going wow, these are just such sad love songs.
1: Larry Gatlin wrote one of my favorite all-time Elvis songs. I believe it was a Jungle Room session song. I could be wrong. You can correct me on that. Bitter They Are, Harder They
0: Fall. Oh, yeah, that's that's a so Jungle
1: certainly Room. Certainly in that era, and oh, that song is just, as a songwriter, it's every lyric is perfect. Then when you add that to the musical arrangement they had, and then you put Elvis's voice in there, you know, Elvis always said Elvis could say more with one note than Pavarotti could say in 50. You yeah. know, he just emoted uh, pain, and you knew it was real. And I'm a kid listening to that, and old times sake. I don't even know what they mean. Yeah. But I knew something was wrong, and it, and it was sad. You know, I didn't know why. I learned, of course, many times later in life, about about that pain but uh at the time elvis was just such you know he's known as this, the king of rock and roll to me he was just the king of soul and heartbreak when it came to to singing a lyric that that involved getting your heart broken and loneliness he, he was just such a man of so many talents and uh so much emotion when he sang
0: He wasn't a songwriter, but he found songs and interpreted them. Let me read you some of the titles from uh, those songs recorded during that first session. Tell me if you can tell where Elvis's mind is by his song selection. Um, The Bitter They Are, Harder They Fall. She Thinks I Still Care. Solitaire. I'll Never Fall in Love Again. For the Heart. The Last Farewell. Danny Boy. Blue Eyes. Crying in the Rain, Never Again, Love Coming Down, Moody Blue, and Hurt. Can you tell wow. where Elvis's head was at the time?
1: And about a year and a half later, we lost him.
0: Yeah. And that song, if you've ever heard the 1955 version of Roy Hamilton's Hurt, wow. I, one of the things I love to do is is I love to, to, to listen to songs that um, are have been covered by other artists. And I especially love to hear songs that Elvis heard and that he himself then covered. You know, I always say the ultimate cover song ever was Elvis when he cut My Way, because it's a song literally written for Frank Sinatra by Paul Anka when he retired from show business, written specifically for Frank Sinatra in that era. Elvis in Aloha goes, yeah, I can do it. And does my <laughs> way.
1: There's a friend of mine that that's a, a huge Beatles fan, as, as I am and as you are. And he goes, yeah, I'm not so much into Elvis. And I said, well, it's just because you haven't listened to the right Elvis songs. Maybe you just know the hits. He goes, well, you know, Elvis never wrote any of his songs. I said, well, let me ask you something. Who who's who do you think the best actor, American actor is? You know, a lot of people say Marlon Brando. Yes. Well, he didn't write Godfather. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it takes in, interpreting something. Nobody could do it like Elvis Presley. He made every word and every lyric of every song his own
0: yeah and that's that's some of the things and that's one of the things i love about uh the albums that have come out over the last few years where you get to hear him in the studio where you get to hear him talking with the band you know Elvis didn't really track a lot he didn't you know come in after the band had recorded all the notes and then do his version he was producing himself. The, the term didn't exist at the time. Felton Jarvis got credit being producer, but Felton pretty much hit play record on the session. Elvis ran the session and the guys were all in there together doing these songs live each time. You can hear Elvis talk about slow a song down, make it faster. James do a guitar thing here at the beginning and then go into the drums and come and uh, So he's producing himself. And uh, even at his most down, he still cares enough about these songs to do them and give them the the justice that they need and to get out how he's feeling. So you're right. You're right. Brando didn't write those lines, but he did come up with the cat in his lap at the beginning of Godfather. So uh, Brando is my special person uh, besides Elvis. So I'll do an entire Brando talking podcast with you sometime because he's, to me, Brando's the best. I love it. Those are our dates with Elvis, all those special days that uh, we wanted to talk about in the month of February. And uh, we're going to be also previewing a couple of upcoming Elvis festivals that are coming in February. We are not done talking, so don't you go anywhere. blow Tom and Big Lou back, and we are still talking because we still have stuff to talk about. And uh, we've held something kind of toward the end of the show, because we wanted to give it its own little section, a discussion about somebody. Uh, we we did our dates with Elvis, but we left this one out. February 6th, Jeff, is the 81st birthday of Memphis Mafia member Jerry wow. Schilling. A very special, uh, to me, one of the most accessible Elvis people uh, to the fans, uh, always loves talking to them, and, and has written what I consider to be one of the two best books Written from an insider's perspective of life with Elvis, and uh, his book uh, "Me and a Guy Named Elvis," just a, a very special guy, and uh, still active in the music industry, uh, as we speak. Still the manager of the Beach Boys.
1: Tom, you guys have a very special friendship, and you have names for each other. Uh,
0: well, yeah. Um. So when I've, I first got to meet him, I met him at an Elvis event in Memphis, and. It, just kind of, we kind of hit it off a little bit. You know, I, 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 I knew some stuff and I, and then a couple of weeks after Elvis week, uh, my wife and I, Lisa, we were in Memphis. uh, We were changing planes to, to, to fly on to Atlanta. We're coming from California, changing planes in Memphis, and we were going to fly to Atlanta and the weather was bad. And I guess it's the, you know, the Buddy Holly, Leonard Skinner legends rattling around in my head. I said, you know what? The weather's too bad. Let's just, it was five o'clock in the afternoon. And they said, we'll probably take off about eight. And I'm like, you know what? Instead of sitting at the airport in Memphis, let's just go to the Peabody tonight and get a room and go down to the lobby bar and get a flight out in the morning. And so that's what we did. And we're at the lobby bar of the Peabody and and on a a random Sunday night uh, and a guy comes up and he, Says He's talking to the bartender, and he's like, well, I, I can't remember. I want, I want vodka, but I, I, I think it's with tonic. I think it's with tonic. And Lisa turns to him, not knowing who it was, and says, you should try it with soda. Vodka soda is really good. He says, oh, okay, I'll, I'll try that. And I was like, do you, do you know who that is? That's Jerry Schilling. He was in town for some meetings, so we started talking. He remembered me from Elvis week, and that kind of kicked off a friendship um, that's been going on like t- about 20 years, something like that. Uh, every time I would go to California on business to Los Angeles, I would always call him and say, Hey, would you like to go to dinner? Ted's buying. Cause I had the Turner classic movies credit card. So I said, we're having a meeting with air quotes and I, we would go to dinner and we did this for two or three years. Every time I would come out, some, sometimes he and his wife, Cindy, sometimes just him, we would go to the Rainbow on Sunset, the old rock and roll hangout, or we would go to uh, um, a couple of Italian restaurants that are close to him. He's just off in the Sunset Plaza where he lives. And one afternoon I called him. I said, hey, I'm coming to Los Angeles in a couple of days. You want to have dinner? Ted's buying. He said, yeah, can I bring a friend? And I said, sure. Yeah, go ahead. I'm thinking Cindy or, you know, so I I get to the restaurant and uh, I'm running a little late because, and and by the way, in California, uh, if you're, 45 minutes or less late, you're still on time, <laughs> because traffic in California, you never know. And I walked in the restaurant, and they—they they, he was sitting in the back of this restaurant, Mirabelle. It was an Italian restaurant on Sunset. Um, sitting in the back is Jerry and Priscilla, and I've never, at this point, never met Priscilla. And I'm thinking, and I've got from the walk of the maitre d' taking me to the table to get together, you know, because I see... Jerry standing up, and I'm thinking, he finally trusts me now. Mm-hmm. With her, and we sat down. And we started talking, and Jerry said his worry was that I would be too nervous and we wouldn't get along. And for the next three hours, Jerry barely said a word. Uh, <laughs> Priscilla and I very quickly discovered a love of dogs and old movies, and to this day, I never actually bring up Elvis. If we talk Elvis, she brings him up. I, she and I always talk old movies and dogs, and she asks how my Lisa is doing, and I ask how her Lisa is doing. So she's a special person, but Jerry was the person that 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 brought us together. So he, he's just a, an amazing guy. We brought him to Tupelo one year, and you got to tell him your Jerry Schilling story. Because you had, I, I love this story.
1: <laughs> As a matter of fact, it's a fun story. Fun stories by Tupelo Tom and Big Lou. So it was so cool. He came to Tupelo for conversations. And you asked me if I would just kind of be the guy for Jerry, just walk with him and, you know, we'll help him, you know, kind of, hey, follow me and all that stuff. And so when you introduced me to Jerry, he looked at me and he said, oh, you're my me. <laughs> exactly. He's such a nice guy and he's so engaging and yeah, I didn't want to be too pushy or anything. We just kind of naturally talked and, and I really enjoyed hanging out with him. And so I got to tell him, I said, you know, I have a Jerry Schilling story and it was one of my first years in Memphis. Might've been my second year. I think uh, during Elvis week, when I was an Elvis tribute artist and um, probably around 2012, 2013, something like that. And we went to this nightclub, which I'm not a fan of, but we went to this nightclub and it was (laughs) real loud and obnoxious. (laughs) And we were with a few other ETAs and a producer guy and and he got us to the VIP section and there was room. Basically it was elevated about, you know, a step. There's a long couch and there was a velvet rope between the two sections. And we get up and we sit down. I sit down on the couch. I'm tired. You know, I'm clearly uh, not in my element and I look to my right and there's Priscilla and some of her friends dancing and sitting on the couch, almost in the exact same position as myself was Jerry. And uh, since I don't know who will be listening to this podcast, I'll, I'll just, uh, I'll beep out the word, but he leaned over and he looked at me. He goes, I'm too old for this beep. And I said, me too. And so we just started talking and is obviously well before Tupelo when I got to meet him. And we sat there for probably an hour and a half. Like you said, he's just so easy to talk to. And I, every now and then I would just stop and go, well, I'm sitting here talking to Jerry Schilling, watching Priscilla Presley dance, just a typical Friday night or whatever it was. And so he decides he's going to leave. And he leaned over and said, if I introduce you to Priscilla, will you do me a favor and just stand next to her and just make sure nobody bothers her? And I looked at him. I said, yes, Jerry. Yes, I will. (laughs) So he, he introduces me to Priscilla and uh she couldn't have been more delightful and funny, and she was having a great time and she was dancing and she'd kind of lean on my back and dance and just kid around. It was like I'd known her my whole life. It was the craziest thing. There's another section of that story I'll say for <laughs> memberships and sponsorships, and you can get exclusive content. I'll tell the rest of that story. But anyway, the story ended up being very funny. Jerry leaves. So when I was in Tupelo and I said, I got a Jerry Schilling story, I said, We were at this dance bar in Memphis. And he goes, and I introduced you to Priscilla and asked you to watch her for me. I said, yes, that's right. So my great Jerry Schilling story is that Jerry Schilling knows my Jerry Schilling story. (laughs) Don't you call him Memphis two, And he calls you Memphis one.
0: I told him one time we were at dinner somewhere having a cocktail or two. and, And I said, you know, you're the second most famous person I know of in Memphis. And he said, well, you know, you're the second most famous person from Tupelo that I know of. And so now uh, we emails and phone calls, and it's it's always uh, Memphis 2 and and Tupelo 2. And when we do events together, he calls it the Tom and Jerry Show. That's
1: great. I love what you say when you talk about where you're from and who's famous and hometown. Why don't you tell that real quick? I love when you do that.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. Sometimes people are offended by this, but I I think it's pretty funny. Uh, So I've lived in... um, uh, I wasn't born in Tupelo. I, I was born in Roswell, New Mexico, which explains a lot, according to my wife. Wow. Um, I was born on Walker Air Force Base, uh, which is where they took the UFO after they it crashed in the 40s. But <laughs> I was born in the same hospital uh, as Demi Moore and uh, John Duchendorf. Uh, he was born there, John Denver. Uh, but I moved to Tupelo when I was three. So I grew up in Tupelo, you know, from here. And uh, I've lived in. Get ready for this. You should see my car tag collection, my my license plates. Uh, I've lived in Illinois, Louisiana, California, Missouri, Georgia, and I'm back in Mississippi. And everywhere I've lived, especially when I was in L.A. and Chicago, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but I have a slight Southern accent. Um, it's 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 a little more pronounced um, when I'm talking to my mother, and when uh, I've had a doctor's appointment with Doctor Jack Daniels. Sometimes it's a little thicker after after that appointment. But when you're in a city, like especially in Chicago, uh, people, I don't know if you've run into this or not, but a lot of people uh, don't have high opinions of the South, mm-hmm. of the residents of the South. And I've had people, oh, you're where are you from? And I said, I'm from uh, Tupelo, Mississippi. Oh, you're from Mississippi. Oh, okay. And I, and, and I always have this little thing that I say, which is, well, I tell you what, let's play a little game. I'm going to name the most famous person from my hometown. And you name the most famous person from your hometown. And unless you're from Bethlehem, I'm going <laughs> to win. And I'll even go first. <laughs> is, I'm from the hometown of Elvis Presley. Who's from your hometown? Crazy. I just won.
1: Oh, I just love that. <laughs> unless you're from Bethlehem. Oh, that is beautiful.
0: Well, you know, as my dad said when I was a kid growing up, and it's got, you know, when you come into Tupelo, birthplace of Elvis Presley, he says, you know that sign's never going to say you lived here. (laughs) He said, you should tell people, he said, you should tell people you're from Verona, (laughs) which is this little teeny little town just South of Tupelo. But, uh, you know, uh, one additional thing I I just want to tell you about Jerry was, uh, talking about, um, the ways of the world and how things are just magic. When I was at Turner Classic Movies, I worked with Robert Osborne, who was our host for 20 plus years, just a wonderful man. And I was, you know, arguably I was, I was supposed to be his boss, but I just listened to him because he was an expert on everything. We were having a movie screening in Los Angeles. And I, I'm thinking the movie was, it's a mad, 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 mad world. Cause it was at the Cinerama Dome. But for some reason, uh, we were having a VIP party beforehand and I remember Harry Dean Stanton was there, you know, um, you can look him up, but I invited Jerry. I said, come to the VIP party. And if you want to stay for the movie, you can, but if you don't, we'll go to dinner, whatever. And so he comes and I said, I want you to meet Robert Osborne. And and so Jerry comes and he's very excited. Jerry's a big old movie fan like Priscilla is. And I introduce him to Robert Osborne and they start talking and I'm thinking, well, you know, Robert, I don't know how much Robert knows about the Elvis world. He knows about him through me because I talk about him incessantly, but I, I, you know, Robert liked Elvis, but so they start talking and, um, Robert says, well, you know, I used to live in Los Angeles and Jerry goes, oh, well, you know, I, I, I live here and, Jerry and Robert says, well, where do you live? And Jerry said, well, I live, you know, up off of Sunset Plaza. And Robert said, oh my goodness, I used to live up off of Sunset Plaza. And Jerry says, well, I live at blah, 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 street. And Robert goes, you live on blah, blah street. I used to live on blah, blah street. And Jerry said, well, you know, I live at 1201. And Robert said, I used to live at 1205. They lived with one house between them that, and here's the part of the story where it just, i my favorite part of the story. So Robert lives in a house, there's a house next door. And the house next door to that is Jerry. And they're living there at the same time in the seventies and eighties, wow. the person who lived in the house in the middle. And here's where it goes off the rails. Sammy Davis, Jr. It's oh.
1: <laughs> <That is, laughs> crazy. The rat pack of blah, blah, blah street.
0: I know. And, and I told, I told Robert one time, I said, you know, the story is totally believable until Sammy Davis pops up out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. That's
1: kind of like most stories. Everybody buys the story until Sammy Davis Jr. comes up.
0: <laughs> My favorite Sammy Davis story, this has nothing to do with anything. Um, Who's the guy that plays the older brother on uh, Everybody Loves Raymond? Oh,
1: he's great. Yeah. Garrett. Something Garrett. Brad Garrett. Yeah. Brad Garrett.
0: Brad Garrett's doing a podcast, and Brad Garrett used to open for Sammy Davis Jr. and would tour with Sammy Davis as a stand-up comic. He would open for Sammy. And he said they would stop. He said, Sammy's bus had like a full kitchen in it. And you would, he would like be cooking while the bus was on the road. And every now and then they would stop at a convenience store and Sammy decked out in complete Sammy jewelry would get off the bus and go into the little convenience store. And he would always buy food for everybody. And, you know, people are getting peanuts and potato chips and sodas, whatever. And Brad said he, you know, he didn't want Sammy to buy stuff for him anymore. So he just made a decision he was going to buy his own stuff. And he said, all I had was a 20. And he said, I just, I I looked, I found Sammy and I said, hey, Sammy, do you have change for a 20? And Sammy says, hey, babe, a 20 is change. (laughs) So this is the kind of things you're going to experience at this podcast. Somebody said, me, Sammy Davis, and I went to my Sammy Davis. I I just love that story. I, I love that line. Hey, babe. A 20 is chance.
1: That's a pretty good Sammy, by the way.
0: Well, I'm just doing Billy Crystal doing Sammy, so it's, you know, it's once removed.
1: Yeah. Uh, I also have a great Sammy Davis Jr. story that involves Porter <laughs> Wagner, but I just can't tell it on this particular podcast.
0: <laughs> That'll be bonus content. We wish a very happy uh, 81st birthday to Memphis 2, uh, Mr. Jerry Schilling, and I'm sure uh, he and Cindy have something very special planned and uh, I, I just think he's a fantastic guy. He's a great guy to have in the Elvis world, and he is a friend to all. And uh, every time I go to Graceland, he says, "Be sure to go by my bedroom and say hello," because Jerry lived off that little hidden room down in the TV room that's that we've seen on a couple of, uh, of VIP tours. We take people in there. He said, "You know, back when I lived there, they they stored all the Christmas decorations there." And I said, "Jerry, they still do." All right, Jeff, we've talked about all the stuff that's happened in the past. What do we have to look forward to in the month of February?
1: We have two great festivals. Uh, we had our first one, our producer, Alex Mitchell and Cody Downath. Uh, some people call him Coat. I call him Cody. And he is with ETA Festivals. Again, etafestivals.com. You can visit that website for more information. And it's the Myrtle Beach Elvis festival. And I got to be honest, when Cody first told me he and Alex were going to do this, I was skeptical. I had it in my head that there's so much entertainment, Myrtle beach. I don't, I don't know if it'll work or not. Boy, I, I was so wrong. That was the first event that we had so many new people. I just, I'll never forget announcing from the stage. How many people are here for their first event? Like I said, 30, 40, maybe in half the room, and they had never seen anything like it. They loved it. Again, I think people probably went in thinking, oh, this will be funny. Let's go to this show. Then they go to the show and they see what these guys do and the commitment they have and how much fun we have, how much fun the audience is. They all made new friends. It was just it was just a, a great festival. So I'm very excited. This will be the second one, again, produced by Alex and Cody. It's February 9th through the 11th, and it's going to be at the Hilton Doubletree Oceanfront. There in Myrtle Beach. And this is what I dubbed and created the line, an elevator fest. So basically you get on your elevator, you press a button, you're at the shows, you leave the shows, you press a button, you're back in your room. So it's real, real convenient and a lot of fun. We have some incredible headliners. Of course, Cody Dale Nath, the producer, he'll be a headliner. Alex Mitchell, the co-producer, he'll be a headliner. And if you haven't seen these guys, folks, they're incredible, incredible talented guys. Michael Chambliss, we talked about earlier. He's great. Jesse Aaron. Jesse has been in this business I guess since the eighties and I'm hoping he does this at, at Myrtle beach, but he does probably the best Roy Orbison tribute I've ever seen. And he's a great guy. I've known Jesse ever since I got in this business. And another guy, he has been doing this probably longer than any of us, uh, Robert Washington. Yeah. And he does a show every Elvis week called the black Elvis. And Robert is a veteran, a legend, and one of the greatest guys and an unbelievable talent. I keep saying that, but it's just true about these guys. So i Real excited, uh, Jesse and Robert are going to be there. Austin Irby, great young man, great talent. Travis Powell, he's real good looking, Tom. That's all I'm going to say about that. I don't want to comment anymore, (laughs) but you're going to love Travis. Uh, Cully, Michael Cullifer, a great friend of ours. All these guys have won championships and uh, grand champions in various contests, and and they're amazingly talented. Leo Days, my goodness, he's a legend in this business. There's a young man who just won the state title in his 12 and under football uh, league, by the way. He's quarterback. He is a hardworking musician, a phenomenal guitar player. He's one of the best young talents I've ever seen. Braxton Sykes, great guy, great family. And I've never seen, I've seen this guy a little bit, so I'm really looking forward to seeing him. And he's another young young man just showing that this, the Elvis legacy is never going to die. Max Lee James, he'll be there. We'll be back by the Fever Band. Of course, I'll be there. We're going to have a lot of fun. So a special thing that happened, Last year, Tom, interesting thing at the Myrtle Beach Festival, we have all-access uh, all pass holders, and you pay a certain amount of money and get special seating, etc. They have lanyards. And on the lanyard, it said M-Y-R-T-E-L Beach. And you know, Tom, some people th- were laughing about that. That was kind of the joke of the festival. And I had to remind everybody, it wasn't misspelled. The family that founded Myrtle Beach was the Mertelli family from Italy. And I couldn't believe the locals were unaware of this history of Myrtle beach. And I told him, I said, I'm so disappointed.
0: Yeah. Lorenzo and Anna, uh, yeah. Mertelli. Yeah,
1: exactly. And they dropped the I, you know, cause back then it was kind of tough to be an Italian and new to America and they built that beach community. And, uh, it was always known as Myrtle beach until all the hillbillies moved there and started calling it Myrtle. And so that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And they even have this bird. It looks like a heron. And they have this special, and this is true. They have this special kind of feather a lubricant on their feathers and they dive down into the ocean and they snag these fish and they're underwater for like 30 seconds. It's amazing to watch. Uh, you see the dolphins, you see, and they're called the Mertelli birds mm-hmm. named after the Mertelli family. And it's so cool. Uh, they have been nice enough to loan us some personally owned items by the patriarch of the Mertelli family. So we're going to be very happy to, uh, give an audience a chance to see that history and hopefully
0: it's like it's third or fourth generation, yes, the kids. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's very exciting. So that's Myrtle beach, sometimes called Myrtle beach. Uh, join us for a lot of fun.
0: And also Jeff, I remember you posting photos uh, of uh, the the view out of your room. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would also say not only is this an elevator fest for the Elvis fans to be able to go up and down in the room, but if you've got a spouse, that doesn't really understand your Elvis obsession, this would be a festival that you'd bring that spouse to. There's plenty for them to do in that beautiful area if they decide not to come down the elevator to the festival. But by the end of the weekend, we will have, <laughs> we will have taken them over. They will get it once they get there. So again, lure them there with the beach and the beautiful view of the Mertel birds going down into the water. But they leave as an Elvis fan.
1: That's exactly right. And then, Tom, a uh, very exciting festival in Alexandria, Louisiana. It's the first time we've performed at this venue. It is gorgeous. It's called the Coughlin Saunders Performing Arts Center. This will be February 23rd through the 25th, the Louisiana Elvis Festival, licensed by Elvis Presley Enterprises, as is Myrtle Beach. And I'm actually co-producing this one with Cody Dale You'll be with us. Yes. Uh, you can get all the information on etafestivals.com. Just click any of the tabs that say Myrtle beach or Louisiana, and you can get that information. We have some great headliners for this one as well. Oh my goodness. Dean Z is going to be with us on this one. Uh, if you haven't seen Dean, if you get to Branson, go see his show. He is the greatest performer. One of the greatest performances I've seen. He is original unique. He does a phenomenal tribute to Elvis. He is, uh, 100% energy. The talent is amazing. He's a great guy. Uh, Tom, we're actually going to interview him. He's going to be our first interview that we do uh, here coming up soon. We'll be interviewing a lot of these guys, and so I look forward to that. Yeah. Bill Cherry. Bill Cherry is the closest thing to Elvis Presley I've ever seen, and I love him, and he's one of my best friends. I so hope be the first one to tell you, I ain't Elvis. I just love Elvis, and he uh, is an incredible talent. David Lee, one of the best guys in our business, amazing talent. All these guys have won the Ultimate Elvis Tribute Artist Championship, by the way. And a Louisiana's own Brandon Bennett, he won the ultimate, and he won Tupelo as well. David won Tupelo, Bill won Tupelo, Dean Z's is a, a special guest at Tupelo every year, and then our friend from England, who also won Tupelo and the Ultimate Australian mm-hmm. Championship, Ben Thompson. Ben will be there with us, and luckily Ree's coming. Otherwise, we really wouldn't care if Ben was going to be there or not.
0: You call her Ree, her name, you know, Rianne. I call her Ben's plus one. <laughs> That's-
1: Oh, you're in trouble. And then our producer, Mr. Cody Dale Nath will be there. Michael Cullifer, our producer, Alex Mitchell, me, you, Robert Washington and Michael Chambers will be joining us again. And you know, Tom, I'm pretty excited about this and I'm sure the, our audience is going to be real excited. You and I might just have a booth there and sign autographs. Can you imagine?
0: We will talk to you if you'd like to come by and say hello. And uh, this must mean we're going to have merch.
1: Uh, we're going to have merch. We're going to at least have a couple of coffee cups, maybe some shirts. We'll see.
0: Well, I've got a couple of old James Taylor t-shirts I can sell. Um, I've got uh, a Rick Springfield from the eighties that doesn't fit anymore. I'm willing to sell that one. So uh, we, uh, you said we were going to have t-shirts. So I, I feel like I should bring some myself to sell
1: a real piece of history. Yeah. So <laughs> one of the great things about uh, Louisiana, of course, is the Elvis history with Louisiana and we used to call it the King Creole Festival, but we just like the name Louisiana Elvis Festival better. It just, it, it, it seemed to work better. Again, we're licensed by Elvis Presley Enterprises and we love the people in Louisiana and the people that travel to Louisiana, especially if they travel to see us. And of course, probably Elvis is arguably his best movie was shot in Louisiana, King Creole. 1958, Lieber and Stroller wrote the song It was based on a novel, A Stone for Danny Fisher, by Harold Robbins, filmed in New Orleans. It was Elvis' favorite character. Uh, Critics loved what he did. I I went back and read some of the old reviews of the film. They talked about how how great of a job the Presley kid did. (laughs) And what's interesting, Walter Matthau's in this, along with Vic Morrow, and sadly, he had the horrific death on the set of Twilight Zone. But it wasn't the last time Vic and Walter worked together. They were in The Bad News Bears. (laughs) which I loved as a kid. Everybody wanted to be Kelly and everybody wanted to date Tatum O'Neill. I was of that age. And Vic was the uh, manager of the, of the rich baseball team of Walter Matthau was uh, the manager of what team I probably would have been on.
0: Also, one of the things about this movie that Elvis was the proudest of is that, that he always said this was the first movie and maybe the only movie that he worked with a real film director, uh, the director of King Creole, Michael Curtiz, who you can, look him up to see movies he directed, but he directed a little movie called Casablanca. So Michael <laughs> Curtiz knew a little bit about how to be a director.
1: It's a phenomenal movie. Uh, Dolores Hart is in it. And what a story she has. She became a nun. And she had that great quote, you know, uh, you know, you, you had a chance to be with Elvis. She goes, well, God is bigger than
0: Elvis. Yeah. Yeah. I've interviewed her a couple of times and and she is one of the most soothing people you can Share space with. I mean, sitting talking to her, it, it's it's really a wonderful experience. She loved Elvis and um had a higher calling, but it's just a wonderful person. and and, uh, like I said, there's a sense of um calm when you're with uh, Mother Dolores.
1: you know, James Dean was supposed to be in that movie. And uh, this is pretty cool. I didn't know this. I was just studying up on it. Richard Simmons was an extra in King Creole.
0: You mean sweating with the oldies, Richard Simmons?
1: <laughs> yeah, he's the one dancing the hardest uh, when Elvis was thinking, Wow,
0: you've blown me away.
1: So join us in February for two great festivals licensed by Elvis Presley Enterprises, Myrtle Beach Elvis Festival, Louisiana Elvis Festival. We'd love to meet you. Please come by and say hi. You're going to have a lot of fun. We hope to see you there next month. ETAfestivals.com for more information. <laughs>
0: So much going on in the world of Elvis with the Mertelli Beach Festival and the Louisiana Elvis Festival. Coming up in March, it's Spring Fever back-to-back festivals in Nashville at the uh, Nashville Elvis Festival at the Factory at Franklin on March 30th through April 2nd. You can go to NashvilleElvisFestival.com for details. And then immediately following that, Jeff.
1: Well, we call it Spring Fever. You can leave Nashville, come down to Helen, Georgia, For the Jeff Lewis and Friends Elvis Festival in Helen, Georgia, April 5th through the 9th, and you can go to jefflewisandfriends.com for information or email us at jefflewisandfriends at gmail.com. So again, folks, we look forward to seeing you at all the upcoming events. Thank you for listening. Tell a friend, download it, send us some ideas, and don't forget to sing the jingle and send it to us. We might play it on the air. (laughs)
0: that's right thanks for listening and uh, i'm absolutely amazed uh as we've been doing this i've been sitting in my office here at the house in tupelo and uh, i have a six-year-old uh jack russell terrier who is asleep in a chair over there that's been here the entire time and i just knew at some point this dog was going to erupt in barking at some mythical animal that might be in the area (laughs) i have two other dogs uh maxine and stella uh that are in the house in another place but miss millie always hangs out with me, and this is Miss Millie Kirkham, uh, my little Jack Russell, who's uh, just sitting right next to me very quietly, and she's sleeping, so uh, I need to probably go, and uh, we need to go on a walk around the neighborhood. You might have figured out who I named her after, Miss Millie Kirkham. You think Mm -hmm. they figured it out, Jeff?
1: I hope so, and we want to thank Alex Mitchell. Man, we couldn't do this without you. You're a great producer. We're going to have a lot of fun with this thing.
0: That's right. Well, Jeff, I don't know about you, but uh, I'm Tupelo Tom.
1: And I'm Big Lou.
0: And we're done done talking. If you've enjoyed this episode of Tupelo Tom and Big Lou Talkin', please visit us online at www.tupelotombigloutalkin.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Lou, or drop us a line at tupelotombiglou at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible by Executive Producers Jeff Lewis and Tom Brown Producer and Editor Alex Mitchell technical advisor, Michael Cullifer, promotions and marketing advisor, Cody Dayanath, and also in part by our sponsors and listeners like you. Do you have an Elvis-related event that you'd like featured on Tupelo Tom and Big Lou talking? Email us at tupelotombiglou at gmail.com to find out more.